Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Heart Speaks podcast. This week, my guest is Chris Ferguson. Chris is a professor of psychology at Stetson University and author of How Madness Shaped History, Mortal Kombat, How the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong, and the mystery novel Suicide Kings. He also has a brand new book that just came out this year, October 2022, called Catastrophe. In this podcast, we talked about a lot, but specifically, we covered the issue of the APA attacking concepts and ideas of traditional masculinity. We talked about how people's cognitive biases and emotional sort of overcompensations can get in the way of sustainable societal change and how we might actually try to combat that and also how long it takes to combat that. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was both informative and humorous, and I love humor. Humor is super important. Can never underestimate its power. So I hope you like it. I hope you share with your friends and family, and I hope you enjoy. Take care. Hi, Chris. Hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Happy Friday. Yeah, happy Friday. Anything exciting going on in your life these days? Oh, yeah. My big excitement the last couple of weeks is somebody got into my checking account and stole $9,800. So that was exciting. No! <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that yeah. We, got, we got it back, you know, because we were able to show okay, it was good. fraudulent. But yeah, a couple of tense days there. <laughs> wow. I'm happy that you got it back. Yeah, yeah. So that was different. <laughs> Certain, certainly some amount of excitement, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you for coming on the pod. Yeah. This is going to be a very free-flowing you know, absolutely. conversation for about an hour. And I wanted to start by asking you about the article that you wrote in Newsweek. Mm-hmm. And just if you could lay some of the context. First, tell us who you are. Okay. Sorry, sometimes I, forget, <laughs> sometimes I forget to ask my guests to sort of give us the lay of the land, but tell us who you are and tell us about the piece that you wrote in Newsweek and what the context for that was. Sure, yeah, it's okay. Who I am isn't really important. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not very interesting. No, uh, my name is Chris Ferguson. I'm a professor of psychology at Stetson University, which is in in Central Florida, right? Sort of near Orlando. And um, yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist and been doing psychology for a, for a long, long time Been teaching for a long, long time. And uh, I would actually spent a long time involved in media violence research. I actually did mostly video games and, and that mm. kind of stuff, which is a lot of fun. But as, as part of that, I, I kind of got interested in this whole issue of uh, how society kind of constructs narratives about things, things to be scared about, kind of, you know, mm. um, and sort of gives them a sciencey truthiness, you know, element to it. And even though the data oftentimes are not as good as reported. So then that indeed turned out to be the case for like violent, you know, people thought violent video games caused mass homicides and stuff like that. Mm. And then they obviously, you know, now we kind of know that they don't, but it was taken very seriously 20 years ago. So that really kind of got me interested in, you know, even how like scientific societies or really professional guilds like the American Psychological Association sort of, you know, create public statements about science and why they're oftentimes so wrong. <laughs> and, and you know, yeah, so I, I guess, you know, I, I've applied that to a few other areas and I actually was have been involved sort of on the inside of the American Psychological Association for a few years. Mm. I was on their Council of Representatives, which is, you know, a, a, a body of psychologists that kind of set policy, you know, for the, the institution. And uh, I'm no longer I, I, I resigned my my APA membership just last year uh, because mm. I just was frustrated with them eventually. But, uh, you know, so I got to see the development of these guidelines for men and boys 
that they so the idea of these guidelines is to sort of provide some insight for therapists who may not be familiar mm-hmm. with the population in general. And right now, I mean, majority of the therapists are are women, you know, so it's mm-hmm. not not, you know, it's, it's actually a pretty good idea in some respects. You know, and many men, you know, need services, but don't seek them out. And there's, you know, lots of issues around, you know, men's mental health that are pretty legitimate. There are other practice guidelines for women, you know, for, you know, lesbian and gay individuals, for trans individuals, so on and so forth. So it's, it, you know, the, the idea of having a guideline for men and boys is not a bad one. But I, I became concerned in the process because, you know, the, the guidelines, so most of the guidelines for, you know, other groups are kind of like, here's a group you may not be familiar with, and here's some of the challenges that they're facing. And of course, you mm-hmm. should learn about them and be respectful to that group and so on and so forth. And the and the tone of the guidelines for men and boys was that, you know, men or traditional men specifically are horrible. <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, they did put it maybe, I mean, they came pretty, it was pretty blunt. I mean, it was pretty, pretty close to that. But, you know, it, it was it was very disparaging, I thought, in many respects, mm-hmm. and also had a lot of problems, you know, regarding the science of gender and sex and, and how all of that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, they basically ignored biology entirely and, and focused on this kind of social construction of gender and masculinity mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I actually got up and and spoke in the council representatives when they were voting on this. And obviously my, I was not Cicero. My, my oratory did not carry the day because <laughs> they still went ahead with, you know, they ignored pretty much everything that I said. And I basically said that, you know, if you release this, this is going to create a huge backlash and mm. it's going to hurt a lot of men because these traditional families, not just the men, but their children and their wives are not going to trust mm. psychology anymore because you just call them all terrible, mm. you know, so it's actually going to harm people. Um, so anyway, so they released it. Sure enough, there was this huge backlash. Nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody likes it. I'm sure people, some people do, but it was not well received for the, for the most mm. part by, you know, either the general public or a lot of psychologists. Um, and that that was in 2018. So, you know, fast forward to, you know, four years later, because science is so slow, I, I you know, basically reviewed their policy statement, all the evidence, you know, about men and masculinity that they sort of refer to, you know, some studies in the area, but also like biological studies of sex and gender. And uh, that just got published this year in an academic journal. And so the Newsweek article is really kind of building off that and and trying to, you know, I'm not the first one to do it. I can't say it was like super original, but, you know, to alert people that this thing still exists, you know, and mm. Presumably, there are some number of therapists, I'm sort of hoping most therapists will ignore it, but, you know, there there probably some number of therapists who are taking this thing seriously and may use it to guide their therapy, which may involve, Mm. you know, you know, as I kind of say, like taking the unemployed or underemployed co-worker with a family of five and, you know, who's depressed and stressed and telling him about his privilege Mm. and, uh, (laughs) you know. Telling about how society is at fault for making him think he needs to be the breadwinner or, th- or this sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I, I question whether that approach is really going to be helpful, even if this guy sticks around for more than a week of uh, of that kind of therapy. So that's kind of where, where it all came from is, you know, there certainly are broader issues with the APA and other science guilds um, like the APA that we're seeing in some other areas as well. But uh, but very specifically, I was concerned about the potential harm of this particular policy statement or policy guidelines for, for men and boys. Do you believe that the average person seeking therapy, let's say in the generalized public, actually pays attention to anything that the APA says? I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) You know? They they really shouldn't at this juncture. Yeah. So it's important to understand that. I mean, the APA is not really a science organization. It's a professional guild, you know. So I was a member for many years. 
like I said, I resigned last year, but you know, we pay several hundred dollars as psychologists, we pay several hundred dollars a year to this organization and they lobby on our behalf, you know, so they're supposed to represent us in a positive way. I now question whether they succeed at that task, but so I didn't want to give them any more money, but, uh, but that's kind of what they do. So they're not, they don't really exist to like tell the truth, if you will, on some sort of like, you know, objective, you know, empirical sense, but rather to like make statements that are good for psychologists not necessarily mm. good for the general public. Now they'll say that they're, they really are supposed to serve the general public, but I don't think that they, sure. they do very effectively. I mean, what happens is, you know, people will tend to like grab one of the APA statements when it suits their interest. So okay. sort of selectively. So if you really don't like video games, for instance, you can find the APA's policy on violent video games, which still tries to link them to at least minor forms of aggression. You know, whether that's mm. scientifically true or not is another question. But so if you really want to advocate for this idea that violent video games are bad, you can find a APA statement that says that they are. Or if you want to say that like spanking your children is bad, you can find an APA statement that says that they are. Or apparently that, you know, men are bad. <laughs> you can find an APA statement that says that they are. So I think people kind of like look for these things. Yeah, it's confirmation bias. People will look for these little things mm-hmm. and kind of use that as, well, see, the APA says that my belief is true. And, uh, you know, who are you to question the APA? But as soon as the APA mm. turns around and says something they don't like, then they ignore that one, you know? So I think that's mm. just kind of a feature of human behavior. But no, the general public probably should ignore the APA until further notice <laughs> if, they, if, they're, mm. if they're wise. I wouldn't use them to guide any policy on anything at this juncture. They're, they're just, they need to clean a lot of house before they should be taken as a credible source at this point. You know, I read the overall summary of the APA's take on uh, men and boys that was linked to in your article. Mm. And my impression was that they definitely seemed to care about men, but they sort of were seeing whatever they could throw at the wall to stick to like yeah. identify what could, what needed to be sort of like dealt with. I didn't actually even know what they meant by traditional yeah. based upon the summary. And also they kept throwing in the word stoicism. They would say things like men aren't encouraged to talk about their feelings, which I think there's actually a lot of truth to that yeah. in the general culture. But then they would attack stoicism. Mm. And that made no sense to me because stoicism is a very particular you know, philosophy that actually helped people to be in touch with their emotions. So I imagine they were responding to a perception of what they thought stoicism was versus what it actually is. So I'm curious, like in your estimation, what did they mean by traditional in the first place? Yeah, I'm not really sure they knew, (laughs) to be honest with you in a way. Yeah. So And in fairness, I mean, there are some good things in the policy, you know, so obviously Mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that I critique, but, you know, so they do talk about like, we should be more respectful to men that are not traditional, which, you know, I fully embrace, you know, that, you know, there is this issue that we don't want to go too far in either direction that, you know, men who are more feminine, less traditional, you know, less stoic, whatever, you know, whatever words we're going to use here, that they should be offered respect, that they shouldn't be shoved into roles in society that they don't fit well with or don't want, you know, and I think that was good. You know, that was sort of the Mm -hmm. the good, the good side. And but I think they could have done that without disparaging this idea of traditional masculinity, Mm. which I agree with. I I don't really think they they refer to sometimes as hegemonic masculinities as, Mm. you know, um, the ideology of, you know, hegemonic masculinity. You know, and so I think without really being super, super clear of of what it is, but I I think it is generally this sort of model of men should be strong, stoic, you know, basically, you know, not demonstrating their emotions publicly, you know, 
that, you know, being, you know, and certainly there's some negative things that we say we all would agree with, but like being violent or sexually aggressive, those are all, you know, those are, but those aren't really like traditional masculine mm. values either. You know, I think most traditional yeah. men would be surprised to learn that like sexual assault was part of their, you know, value system. <laughs> so I think that's part of it is they sort of like shoved together some real like pathological, you know, psychopathic traits with traditional mm. traits. You know, so like, you know, prioritizing family, trying to be strong, protective of your loved ones, you know, all that kind of stuff, being a provider, working, you know, families that may have more traditional roles where the husband is a breadwinner and the wife is sort of stay at home. You know, like obviously that's mm. not for everybody, but it's for some people, yeah. you know, some people do prefer those types of, uh, you know, family roles. So I think it's kind of like shoving all that stuff in together. And rather than mm. saying, well, like if you're sexually assaulting women, that's bad. And, you know, it, which nobody would disagree with it. We're sort of like mixing that in with all these other things. Like if you believe you should be the breadwinner, if you believe you should present a strong emotional front and all this kind of stuff, if you like sports, you know, that that these are somehow also bad. And Mm. I think that's where they kind of went off the, the rails. But yeah, I was never satisfied that they had like a real clear vision Mm. what they meant by traditional masculinity and like i said so there there are certain points where they they had these quotes you know so they like talk about sexual assault at one point and they say that men who have traditional or sexist beliefs about women or whatever you know (laughs) well well i mean sexist yeah i mean (laughs) but why did you throw traditional and sexist together you know i don't Mm. know that those two things fit necessarily mm. you could have just said sexist you know and sure. you would have made your point and i think that wouldn't have been controversial but that you threw in traditional as in to say that all traditional men are misogynistic or sexist towards women mm. you know maybe some are but i've also seen some very progressive liberal men who are sexist and misogynistic too so mm. uh, why why are we sort of lumping traditional and sexist together and sort of implying that these are you know the same thing uh, or mm. highly related to each other. And uh, yeah, and, and I mean, the the guy, by, by admission, you know, so what I'm saying is not controversial, but yeah, the, the writers of the guidelines were very much guided by intersectional and sort of, you know, radical feminist theory. So I'm, I'm just simply saying what they said, you know, I'm not mm. interpreting anything in there. So they really saw everything through that you know, very progressive, you know, lens. And it's not that Mm. these theories have no value whatsoever, but by seeing everything only through that lens, you know, I think Mm. that distorted their interpretation, you know, so they talk about how masculinity is socially constructed, you know, and certainly society plays some role in how masculinity develops, but certain, but so does biology, you know, and so Mm. there's really, I think there was next to zero mention of biology Mm. at any point, you know, in these, in these guidelines. And there was this idea that, you know, men who are struggling with, I don't know, their, you know, work or like, because you sit them down and talk about how patriarchy and society's Mm. expectations are like the root of their problem rather than like helping them find out how to get another job. Uh, So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, which I yeah. think would probably be what most men are coming in to, to look for is not to learn about the patriarchy, you know, but which if there is such a thing, they're probably not part of because they're poor and unemployed. <laughs> but, mm. uh, you know, but rather, you know, some sort of practical guide, you know, guidance for how they may, you know, adjust to their life circumstances, which may include unemployment or, or other types of stress. Mm. So, um, yeah, so it was very much an ideological document, you know, by admission of the people who wrote it. And I think because they saw everything through that particular lens, you know, it prioritized the political agendas of that ideology. And in many ways, simply reversed, you know, the sort of sex role 
expectations that, you know, rather than saying, well, you know, some men might be traditional, some men may be more progressive, maybe some men be more feminist, you know, not just feminist, but like feminine, you know, and that's, that's okay. Um, You know, we should maybe not have such rigid expectations for how men should behave. Um, That they're kind of saying, like, if you're traditional, if you're stoic, if you're more assertive, if you believe that you should be the breadwinner, you know, and your wife, you know, should be at home with the kids, and assuming she agrees, you know, mm-hmm. that you're nonetheless still bad, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or that this is a problem for you. And that is the root of your problem rather than the guy that fired you or, you know, whatever other problems sure. are really going on in your life. So so given the if we set aside the perhaps ideologically informed context that the AP is uh, the APA is coming out of. How might you advise us as a society to deal with the challenge of, let's say, men who do themselves conflate traditional ways of being with misogyny? Yeah. In some ways, you could argue that the failure of the APA lies in its failure to distinguish and to discern and to tease that out. Yeah. But you do. There is the, the case that men, some men do conflate these two things. And so. How do you address that in the field of psychology and perhaps even more broadly speaking? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. So, I mean, I think, you know, it is this kind of like conceptual confusion that that happened. Like Mm -hmm. I said, like, you know, in that one statement where they refer to traditional and sexist, you know, sort of like attitudes. Well, I don't know that if you are looking at sexist attitudes that adding traditional attitudes into that adds any more to the pie. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know that it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, thinking in terms of like predictive value, uh, Mm -hmm. if you are like assessing for like, I think women are liars. I think women, you know, should just give me sex when I want it or whatever. You know, those are traditionally sexist attitudes versus women are better at child rearing than men, you know, which would be Mm -hmm. more of a traditional, you know, worldview. Or I should be strong if, you know, my family is going through tough times, you know, uh, which would be more traditional. Does do those questions add more predictive value to who's going to rape a woman, you know, than Mm -hmm. the first two questions? You know, I don't I don't know that that is. Well, I mean, I do know they don't they don't (laughs) they don't add any real value to it. And I think, it, you know, again, it confuses people because it sort of equates this. There's this idea that traditional men that being traditional is inherently more sexist than saying being progressive, mm-hmm. right? You know, but, you know, we know of examples of, of uh, at least ostensibly progressive mm-hmm. men who have done horrible things to women. I mean, we need to look no further than the Me Too movement, which sure. you know, had very little impact in traditional circles, but was all about, you know, mostly progressive, like Harvey Weinstein was an ostensible mm-hmm. feminist who in his private life was ass- assaulting dozens of women, you know, um, yeah. so... I don't know that thinking that this is a traditional family problem or a traditional male problem Mm -hmm. is the right frame if we're really serious about, you know, misogyny and, and, uh, you know, things like sexual assault or, you know, domestic violence towards women or or whatever else. I mean, it's a more complicated frame. And uh, I think we're really trying to use one concept to stand in for another one. So it's, mm. you know, particularly, I have to imagine most psychologists are progressive, you know, we're all liberals, mm. myself included. So there are very few, you know, conservative, traditional psychologists at this point, mm. uh, at any rate. There's actually relatively few men, you know, in the field mm-hmm. at this point too, particularly in the younger cohorts of psychologists. Um, mm. So it's, you know, it's a very female dominated field, you know, increasingly so in the more recent generations. You know. 
So I think it's very comforting if you come from a progressive liberal worldview to think of mm. traditional families, men, boys, as dysfunctional. Sort of the source of the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And rather than pathological, yeah. Yeah. So rather than talking about misogyny and sexism, which are legitimate issues that we should be concerned about, we're we're talking about traditional masculine values, Mm. which is a different thing, you know. So Mm. I think that's the conceptual mistake that. So there's, sounds like you're saying there's even confirmation bias within the APA, which. One would hope maybe would be less susceptible to such a thing, considering that the entire field of study is (laughs) psychology, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think there's also like a... I'm reading this book called Seeing Like a State, Uh and it's about how solutions to improve the human condition when scaled up can actually have disastrous results. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that the APA being a sort of like central repository, uh, opining upon something or let's say a set of experiences which happen by definition locally can contribute to that sort of negative byproduct that's articulated in this book I'm reading about? And if so, like, where do you see that happening in, in some of its pronouncements? Or Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we can look back. I mean, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we made in psychology slash psychiatry, I mean, we blame psychiatry mm. for this one, but... Which, by the way, I don't know the difference between those two things. Yeah, psychologists are better. That's all you need to know. Is that... <laughs> <laughs> but, but not by much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so uh, psychologists, I'll be very quickly... Psychologists, uh, yeah. we get a, uh, I'm a psychologist, so we get a PhD in uh, in, in clinical um, psychology, typically. It's a more research, academic focused thing, even though we are mm. taught to you know do therapy, do assessments and things like that. Most psychologists, we also do testing. So if you want like your okay. IQ tested, you know, for instance, you know, that would be a psychologist that would do that. Both psychologists and psychiatrists can do therapy, you know, so we're mm. both open, you know, to that. Most psychologists don't prescribe medication, however. So there are okay. some, there's some states that do allow psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, excuse me, to prescribe medication. So it's mostly psychiatrists who are medical doctors that will prescribe medication or in some rare cases, maybe do surgery or things like that for people that have neurological or psychiatric problems. Um, so it's much more medical, mm. but but less research oriented, you know. So, okay. you know, I guess the way that some ways to think of it is, is psychologists are more like a, I'm going to be biased when I say this, but uh, psychologists are more like academics. You know, we're more we're more like the traditional scholars and then psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. Are, it's kind of like a trade. That's what you know. Okay. I, so that's why I say it sounds out of bias when I say it that way, but it's you know, a very important trade for very, very intelligent people that need to learn very critically complicated things. But it is much yeah. more trade focused than it is research focused. But although there's some wonderful research psychiatrists out there, you know, don't get me wrong, mm. you know, but there's not usually trained in research the way that, that we are a psychologist. So and I'm sure if you ask a psychiatrist, they would point out all the horrible things about psychologists and, and all the wonderful sure. things about psychiatrists. So, you know, obviously we're all biased. But uh, no, I think one, one of the biggest mistakes that is a, an example of this, of like taking a real problem and then making it worse, you know, kind of a thing, mm-hmm. is the deinstitutionalization movement of the 1950s and 60s, where we closed all of the asylums in, you know, mm-hmm. or most of the asylums, you know, in the States. Uh, and there are a few reasons. First off, they, you know, the states didn't want them anyway because they're expensive. But, you know, mm-hmm. there was this idea that the asylums were often abusive, which was true, you know, particularly for the sort of mid 20th century asylums mm-hmm. and that there are these new psychotropic medications that were coming out that would allow people with like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder to sort of rejoin society. Mm-hmm. It, so it, it turns out the medications don't work that well. 
I mean, they work, but okay. yeah, I don't want to say they don't work at all, but you ended up in, in the end of, you know, they, it was a good faith effort, I think for the most part, to address some real problems of, you know, lack of due process in psychiatric mm-hmm. hospitals, sometimes, sometimes some abuse that was going on in those, and this promise of these new medications that people thought maybe could replace, you know, we, we want to get people back into normal lives, right, which is a, right. a reasonable goal. And what we ended up with was mass homelessness, you know, in the end. Mm. Why Why did it end up in that way? Well, be, because the, the medications actually don't work as well as people hoped. I mean, they do work and they remove like a lot of like the hallucinations and delusions and stuff that people have. But they don't tend to work as well for like confusion and disorientation, which are some of the other mm. symptoms you get with these disorders. So it becomes very hard to keep people on the medications um, mm. because you need not to be confused in order to remember to take your medication right. and, such. and also the medications have a lot of adverse side effects so that they're on un- they're unpleasant you know for people to mm. take and so a lot of people don't want to to remain on them so instead of having you know the institutions like the asylums uh that people with chronic mental illnesses could go and they could be fed and housed and and kept in a you know if you got rid of the abuse obviously the abuse is a real issue but, you know, assuming that there was due process and a more humane yeah. environment that they would be cared for. Instead, you know, they basically said, here's your bottle of Thorazine. Good luck. Mm. Um, and sent them out, you know, and, uh, you know, they still they're disoriented enough. That's hard to remember to take their medications, which they don't like anyway. It's hard for them to hold a job down, you know, sure. and so on and so forth. So they cause a lot of problems. So their families oftentimes don't want them around. And, and so, you know, they end up becoming homeless, you know. So I think that's an, a, an issue where, you know, you could you could look at case examples of individuals and say, like, this person is being abused and they're not getting the care that they need in this asylum. We need to fix this and then put this big solution in and it just makes everything worse than, sure. you know, uh, it's not that the problem wasn't a legitimate problem, but that the solution ended up causing more problems for everybody, you know, including homelessness, mm-hmm. crime, you know, the abuse of, you know, the mentally ill, you know, mm-hmm. um, so it, it really was a disaster, but now there isn't much movement to try to fix it, unfortunately. Yeah, I wonder what solutions you would uh, hypothesize to fix such a thing. Because on the one hand, you don't want to go back into an abusive system. Right. On the other hand, having mentally ill people who are also homeless is another problem. Yeah. So is there a in-between or maybe not an in-between solution, but just like what is the difference in approaches that you would yeah. suggest to, you know, address that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the reality is, is if I, when I become grand poobah, you know, when people hand <laughs> over the reins of control, you know, yeah. uh, which, uh, you know, it can't happen a moment too soon. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that the reality is, is we're going to really have to move back to a state sponsored asylum system of some sort. Okay. And we're going to have to learn from the mistakes of the you know 1940s, 1930s asylums, you know, so we need much more transparency and oversight of these institutions to prevent abuse. You know, we need clear rules of due process, you know, so that a judge has a look at these cases, you know, every three months, six months, you know, whatever it may be mm. that's reasonable to make sure this person still needs to be institutionalized mm. and that the care is based on the most updated and empirically validated treatments, which unfortunately, you know, the, the problem is still the same today as it was 100 years ago is that the, the evidence isn't terribly encouraging, you know, for a lot mm. of uh, the treatments uh, that we have. But nonetheless, you know, what they did in the in the early 20th century would be stuff like, you know, injecting people with insulin and, you know, you know mm. cutting off pieces of their brains and stuff like that to see if that worked. And we, nope, 
it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, so, it doesn't help. Yeah. Um, so we don't want to do that, that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we want, you know, we want the treatment to be as updated as possible and, and keep, you know, researching better and better treatments for what's available. And if people do get better, then they should have the option, you know, to return back to society. But I think, you know, we are going to have to accept that, you know, we are going to have to pay taxes because it's going to cost money. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Nobody builds these things, you know, there's no asylum fairy that's going to build them out of like sugar plums or anything. You know? yeah. So, you know, we're going to pay money for it. And, and, and the problem there is you have to make an appeal to the taxpayers about why they should, they should mm. fund this, you know. So, right. why, why it's valuable in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. And saying, well, these people are living bad lives isn't going to do it. You know, um, it's not. No, it's not going to do it. So it turns <laughs> out not? humans are mostly selfish. Yeah. <laughs> Go figure. You know, there, there are probably a few exceptions out there, you know, in history. But humans are mostly we don't like to think of ourselves as selfish. Right. You know, but mm-hmm. uh, guarantee, you know, when we have no skin in the game, it's nice to take, you know, big mm-hmm. moral stances. It's the moment we have skin in the game. <laughs> nope. <laughs> we don't want to pay any money. Uh, homelessness is bad. We should do something about that. Well, would you pay 100 extra dollars a month out of your payroll to, for, to fund the homeless? Nah, <laughs> <laughs> I would. It's a particularly acute problem here in New York, actually. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. like a it's like a felt problem. Yeah. And so I think a proposal like this in New York City, obviously, this problem differs also from place to place. Yeah. Right? So the, in- the intensity of the problem. So I think a place like New York City, the residents might actually be more open to yeah. this kind of proposal because we do have skin in the game and we do yeah. see it on a daily basis. Whereas like if, if you're not seeing it, it's just like, what is the purpose of this? Which I think makes sense. Like, you know, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't propose like a blanket federal proposal right. for these sorts of things because right. that wouldn't make much sense. But this is a great segue to talk about your book. Why don't you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your book and what the premise is and why you wrote it to begin with. Yeah, sure. Did I write a book? Yeah, I guess I did. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, my book is uh, it's called Catastrophe. So it's pretty much what it says on the tin there. Yeah, so the, the subtitle is uh, The Psychology of Why Good People Make Bad Situations Worse. So I'm very interested <laughs> in this idea, kind of like what we're talking there about. There seems to be a theme here. Yeah. <laughs> people screw things up a lot, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so people see a problem and uh, they try to fix it. And the problem is worse <laughs> at, the, at mm. the end of it. And it results from really two broad sets of issues. One is emotions often get in the way. So I talk about some examples of like, you know, why airplane pilots sometimes crash planes that are perfectly capable mm. of flying, you know, or why people run back into a burning building that they know is on fire, you know, mm-hmm. not just horses, horses will do it, but you know, we all know horses will do it, but why people do it, you know, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, so there, you have that sense of like sometimes emotion, right? Just captures us mm-hmm. and uh, renders our decision-making rubbish right you know and i think that you can see just even historically recently everything from like the january 6th whatever mm-hmm. you want to, insurrection right whatever you want to call that thing you know through you know some aspects of like the black lives matter protest right mm-hmm. uh, you know there was a lot of emotionality that was driven into these things and nobody was like really looking at the data and actually how complicated mm-hmm. or or people in some cases like stop the steal, just ignoring the data, you know, whatever. And uh, so you see how. So I wanna, you, yeah, good. I want to ask you about this issue particularly because I've seen the work of Jonathan Haidt and how he talks about how we make this false dichotomy between emotion and rationality. Yeah. So also, there's a great book called 
Descartes' error, mm-hmm. which I think teases this out as well. So what do you mean by emotion specifically? And maybe you can use like, let's say the Black Lives Matter situation as an example, but can you tease out what you mean by emotion? Yeah. So, you know, emotional response is typically some sort of effective physiological response that we get to a particular stimuli. So something happens and we feel fear or anger or happiness, elation, you know, disgust. You know, we really have these kind of like roughly six sort of like hardwired in emotional reactions, which are kind of, as you remember them off the top of my head, you know, happiness, disgust, surprise, fear, anger, and sadness are really kind of like the, mm. the, the six hardwired emotional <laughs> responses we have. And these are like, they are like programmed, you know, responses mm. that we have that require no real thought or intent or anything of that sort. So, you know, you're sitting at the table waiting for lunch to be served and the server brings, you know, a bowl of human eyes, you know, <laughs> catch up, you know, yeah. and your response to that is pre-programmed for, you know, yeah. uh, either you're a psychopath and you smile and enjoy it, <laughs> or for most of us, we, we experience a disgust reflex, you know, that is uh, largely out of our control. With cognition, you know, cognition is where we're actually taking the time to sift through information and data. Mm. Um, you know, so we actually like talked about stoicism, you know, earlier. Yeah. And so stoicism is a kind of a form of like intentional cognition, mm-hmm. if you will, where you're having an emotional response to something, but rather than give full voice to it right away, you actually stop and take stock of that emotional response and try to discern, is this emotional response fitting for the actual stimuli? Is there a better way of, on one hand, controlling that emotional response, but also understanding the situation in in its proper context so that the behavioral response is perhaps more efficient, you know? So theoretically, there's this idea, right, that, and I'm still using that binary that that Jonathan would probably disapprove of, but uh, (laughs) but it's but there's an idea, right? That we have like this emotional response, and then we but we have an opportunity, right, to also like stop and think our way through it, mm-hmm. you know. And that may actually change. We may not be able to really to change our emotional response, but we can change our behavior response to that emotion mm. or to whatever stimulated that emotion. So in, in many ways, you know, that's where kind of like stoicism actually is a good thing. Is if if you mm-hmm. can stop and do that, your behavioral response will oftentimes be more efficient. The downside, however, is we also have a lot of cognitive biases, right? You know, mm-hmm. so we tend to, on the other hand favor information that supports our pre-existing uh, impressions of things, that confirmation bias you were referring mm-hmm. to earlier, right? You know, for instance, um, or we tend to favor our own side, you know, it's my side bias that we refer to. You see this in politics all the time, right? You know, free speech for me, but not for thee, you know, kind of yeah. uh, the attitude, right? It's okay when my side censors you, but it's bad when you, your side censors me. Yeah, so there's a bunch of these different, um, you know, biases that distort the way that we perceive information and, you know, uh, assimilate that information and make behavioral responses based on that uh, information. You know, things, again, like groupthink, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking about with the APA and such. If everybody around you says one thing, you kind of conform to it. Uh, yeah. Extent. So those also so we, we can get bad responses from, you know, em- you know, emotional reactions that can block cognition. But even if we're trying to engage in the kind of cognitive response, all these cognitive biases can also distort perception of what's going on. And once again, you know, sort of make it difficult for us to make good decisions about um you know, a, a problem. I'm thinking 
you know, right now, like Germany, they're about to have the coldest winter, mm. you know, uh, that mm. they've experienced because they don't have any fuel. Because, <laughs> sure. you know, because the Ukraine, Ukraine war, right? They got cut off from all the national gas. Right. They have a bunch of nuclear power plants sitting around. They just closed them down over the last five or 10 years and stuff. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure you just can't like turn on the light switch and turn it back on again. But, you know, but I think, you know, a lot of energy experts are saying like, this was a self-inflicted wound. You should turn your, mm. you know, you should go back to nuclear, uh, you know, to at least, you know, offset some of this loss of, of uh, yeah. natural gas power. So the question becomes, well, why aren't you doing it? You know, mm-hmm. uh, why isn't Germany doing it? And yet, no, no offense to Germany, the U.S. isn't a lot better about nuclear power yeah. either. And people just have a sense of, well, nuclear's icky. You know, that's, that's really, <laughs> that's really it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, you know, it just feels mm-hmm. icky, you know, even though it's far safer than a coal-fired plant, you know, mm. far fewer people have been killed by nuclear accidents than accidents or just regular pollution released by coal-fired plants, you know, but what mm. is Germany doing? They're turning on all their coal-fired plants, you know, and yeah. uh, still, I think they have one or two nuclear power plants are still running, but they're, they're, or maybe a handful, and they're still going to shut them down. So anyway, so it's that kind of thing of like, you get smart people, you know, and they have a real problem. They need to heat like their country. Yeah. And they have a solution sitting in front of them and they choose the wrong one. Right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm interested in that. Like, like why, yeah. like, like why, why, why do smart people, you know, even when they have the time to sit and think cognitively through something, it's not like there are red lights going on in the cockpit and you need to respond sure. in the next two minutes or you crash, you get a little bit of time. And even with that time, you still got the, the bad response uh, out of it. Mm-hmm. I, I find that fascinating. So, the book is really an exploration of that, like like mm. why so not all the time, but why so often do people somehow still <laughs> manage to make terrible decisions, even though they're smart, you know, and uh, they're around smart people, and the solution is probably sitting right in front of them. Sometimes, at least, uh, not all the mm. time, but uh, and still they, they they don't reach for it. I can imagine in the case of Germany, it's probably and not just Germany. I suppose this affects the whole world, but it's this connotation of nuclear that's associated with nuclear war yeah and nuclear weapons yeah and then the question becomes uh well this is the question that i would propose how might we as individuals and how might we as a society start to train our cognition yeah to almost in a zen-like way understand or start to discern between concepts and the fact that concepts are created by us, yeah. meaning nuclear can mean a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And we subconsciously attach positive, negative, good, bad yeah. connotations yeah. Uh, you know, to these words that we ourselves came up with. And if we are not able to start to see ourselves in the process of creating our realities in mm-hmm. that way, then we will assume that nuclear is negative because it fell from the heavens. Like yeah. that it just is what it has always been been the case. But I'm curious how you have seen this work its way into Black Lives Matter movement. How did these cognitive biases and or yeah. emotional, I mean, I do think there is no binary, but that's okay. Yeah. And, and, and or emotional sort of like mishaps get taken up in the Black Lives Matter uh, movement of 2020? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great question. Yeah. So, I mean, I think obviously it's, it's a complicated process, right? You know, so, uh, but I think a lot, there were a lot of moving pieces and they all kind of went mm. in the same direction at, at that particular moment in time. Um, you know, so 
first off, I mean, I think part of it is like an informational bottleneck that news media uh-huh. creates to some extent, mm-hmm. right? You know, so what happens with news media, and this is this is something that's related to what we call the availability heuristic in in psychology. Okay. So you see this with like airplane crashes. So you know, even people got a little bit better about it, but like historically, mm-hmm. people would overestimate the frequency of airplane crashes, right? Because mm-hmm. they see them on the news, and all of a sudden they think they're like planes are flying, are falling out of the sky, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. And people believe that like air travel is more dangerous than car travel, which we all know now is false, you know. Yeah. And that's actually an important example. I'll, I'll, if I remember, I'll try to come back to like the, the whole airplane crash thing as a way of actually fixing this but um and how long it takes <laughs> to fix it so what happens with with news media and people like john mcwater pointed this out you know and there's plenty of stats all over the place to sort of you know to point this out but you know the picture on like race and policing is really complicated right and it's mm. and it's nuanced and you know, there's so many pieces of it and it's tough to have like a real like there's it, nothing you can put on a poster right you know it's, it's mm. really it's like a, a mess you know but what happens is police police shootings of unarmed people are rare in the United States, first off. But, you know, they are spread out across different racial categories. So some unarmed white. So it's mostly men. Right? But, you know, there was Breonna Taylor, but it's still mostly men. You know, so mm-hmm. some unarmed white men are shot by police. Some unarmed black men are shot by police. More rarely, some unarmed Asian people are shot by police mm-hmm. and Latinos as well. Um, but what happens with news media is, you know, we could talk about like, well, it's disproportional, you know, given the percentage of the population, more black men are shot than white men. But on the other hand, proportionally also, yeah, just being honest, you know, this is this is the truth. You know, more black men are coming into contact with police than in the first place than than white men because of, you know, the committing crimes. Mm. But what happens with news media is when a white male is shot by a police that gets no attention. And but when a black mm. man is shot by police, then they are given news attention. And even if, say, you know, I think the numbers have ranged from like a low of four in in recent years, at least, you know, mm. the 2010s, uh, a low of four to a high of maybe a little bit over 20 unarmed black men being shot, you know, by police in, in the United States that if, say, in an average year, it's maybe, say, 12 or 13, 14, some, something in that range. That's one a month, you know, and if every mm. one of those gets highlighted in news media, in national mm. news media. That creates this impression in people's mind that's happening all the time, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so that creates the impression that police, first off, are only shooting uh, mm. young black men who are unarmed, and that it's happening t- continuously. And so you can mm. see that there, there was these researchers at uh, Skeptic Magazine that showed that like, if you ask people how many unarmed black men are being shot by police every year, they, the estimates are like a thousand or ten thousand. Mm. In some case, like the proportion of people that grossly exaggerate the number of these shootings is 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 fairly high. You know, so people have this perception. Now we would all say that the correct number should be zero. You know, so any number above zero is too many. You know, mm-hmm. but people have the impression of this being a much greater crisis. That this is sort of like a core thing that is happening in police on a daily basis mm. in the United States, rather than an extremely rare thing that can be explained, at least in part, due to, you know, increased rates of contact between young black and Latino men, you know, versus, you know, Asian or, or white men. Asia, nobody talks about Asian men are shot by police the least of anybody. Mm. And nobody seems to point <laughs> Point to point to that because it just doesn't fit the narrative, right? You know, so you have that aspect of things. And once the movement kind of goes, like there's this emotional sense of this is a bad thing. But also, if you stop and point out, well, aren't some like white guys or Latino guys also mm-hmm. being shot by police? Or isn't there a difference also in the rate of crime perpetration between the you know the ethnic groups or whatever? Or isn't all of this? 
really more a class thing than a race thing. Mm-hmm. Like, aren't white men who are poor experiencing kind of the same situations as black men who are poor? Shouldn't we be focused on a class? Mm-hmm. Then you're just labeled a bad person, right? You know, and <laughs> yes. uh, you know, you, you know, not just, not just wrong, but like you're yeah. you know, you're that you deserve to have your life destroyed, right? So that creates this social incentive. This, you know, I think something people refer to as the emperor has no clothes sort of effect, right? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody just kind of goes with the flow because they don't want to be the bad person who, you know, so even if, you know, there's some degree of skepticism on the part of an individual, you know, that person doesn't uh, give voice to it because they're afraid of the consequences, you know, either mm. professionally or socially, you know, they don't want to lose friends, they don't want to lose their job, so on and so forth. And that creates the sort of unstoppable, like out of control freight train of a narrative mm. that becomes difficult to to challenge, you know, and in a fair, it's not like it's not something that was unique to the Black Lives Matter movement or anything. We can see this with on the right, you know, the stop the steal is probably very similar mm. in some respects, you know, to, uh, you know, to that in, in its function that if you disagree with it, then you're a bad, per- you know, you're you're a traitor to the country, you know, or, or mm. sort of thing. It really creates a massive incentive to, you know, just sort of sing along with the chorus and a massive disincentive to apply any kind of critical thinking to the mm. situation. I remember like the statements of like white silence is violence and, and all this mm. kind of stuff, which is, you know, very, very I remember that too. you know, <laughs> very yes. coercive approach to, you know, sort of like public discourse and, uh, and all the all the people that and it was mostly, I think, high income white people mm. for the most part who were like like shouting at diners and raising their fists in the air and, you know, and that yeah. kind of stuff. And uh, and I think COVID played a role in that, too. You know, in that, sure. you know, obviously that changed the social dynamics that people were experiencing at the time. And uh, there were a lot of particularly young people that had nothing else to do, you know, yeah. uh, and no other purpose. So for a while, you can feel like you're part of this like revolutionary movement that you're you're not it's no cost to you. Right. You know, you're not yeah. actually giving anybody money. Uh, you know, but you're going out and protesting and you feel like you're part of this big movement. You feel like a good person. You're you're striking a blow for racial progress. And then COVID goes away. So you go back to what you were doing. And it turns out like the leaders of BLM bought a bunch of mansions with all the money. And, and uh, it turns out like, you know, thousands more people in lower income neighborhoods are dying from homicides because the cops mm-hmm. are all retiring or not patrolling those neighborhoods. And then you kind of left with a big mess, you know, mm-hmm. uh, again. But in that moment, you felt pretty good, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of like cognitive and and um, and emotional issues that go into a, a movement like that, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll be honest, I think it, it did a, a lot more damage than than good. I'm trying. I'm actually trying to think of like what what good did it do um, to try to try to balance that statement. I'm struggling a little bit, um, but yeah, I don't want to say it was all bad necessarily. But uh, and I think it is possible two and a half years later. Now we can kind of have these conversations about the data and its complexities. Uh, but at the time, it was very. I kept my mouth shut. I'll just I'll say that, mm-hmm. you know, for at least a while. Um, it was very frightening to say. But I remember seeing on like social media some playing, there's a genocide going on in the United States every mm-hmm. day. It's like I think like where? <laughs> where where's yeah. the, where, where where's the data on that? I mean, there's yeah, yeah, that's a pretty I mean, anybody should be able to say like that's a pretty extreme claim. And where where is where are the numbers coming from for that? I mean, it doesn't say that we're a racial utopia, that no problem, yeah. no problems whatsoever. 
but there's a big gulf between racial utopia and genocide, you know, that yeah. South Africa of the 1960s kind of thing. You know, it's OK to be somewhere in the middle, maybe even a bit optimistic, perhaps. But that's, yeah. that's what kind of happens. It really these, these kind of movements just take on a life of their own. And because mm. they become socially coercive, you can get there, there's this phenomenon that's called the sort of like minority rule, which is basically if you have a small group of people in a population who are very vocal and very coercive and very punishing that mm-hmm. they can really set the agenda for the entire population, you know, so everybody mm-hmm. else is just too afraid to uh, to question that. And so I think that, you know, both on the left and the right, you know, we are experiencing this kind of effect of a minority rule, you know, whether that is this kind of reflexive idea that, you know, the U.S. is systemically racist and and, and mm-hmm. we're like a, an oppressive genocide state on the left or this sort of sense of like, you know, the best thing for the U.S. would be to have Trump 2.0, which mm-hmm. I, I can't believe the vast majority of people actually think this. But it seems to be verboten on the right uh, to say, mm-hmm. like, this would be a disaster. <laughs> yeah. they, they, again, I, I can maybe think of one or two good things that came out of the Trump administration. But, you know, I, I would, I, again, have to sit and think. <laughs> um, yeah, so. I do think that it's important, even as we're talking about these, well, I'm speaking specifically about Black Lives Matter. I do think that what got obscured in the media was sort of the more local grassroots Mm. protests that were happening that had nothing to do with the centralized, you know, sort of leadership. Certainly, you know, my apartment was actually turned into a kind of local Black Lives Matter hub in 2020. But that was very specific to New York politics and policing in New York. And I think that we should... Just acknowledge that those complexities were also at play. Yeah. And unfortunately, again, we're obscured by sort of hyper focus on, you know, the ideological tropes that were being promoted by the central leadership. And I think this just continues to speak more and more to the folly of having relying heavily on a a structure where central leadership sort of like disseminates down from the heavens and assumes that what they pronounce is going to like manifest in really appropriate ways on the ground. Yeah. Which is impossible because quite frankly, I was actually thinking about this today. The black community in Ferguson is different from the black community in New Orleans. Sure. It's different from the black community in Brooklyn. It's the, right. So like even this sort of, there's an irony in this coming from the left in the sense that I could get behind the idea of, you know, quote unquote decolonization. Yeah. If what that meant was like, oh, we're going to talk about like localized communities and like cultivating local community. But like what I am seeing is that and this was the case with the uh, centralized Black Lives Matter leadership. People are just using that term to move power. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's like and there's, there's such a profound irony to that. But you said you wanted to circle back to airplane crashes and availability. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm, yes. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to do that. <laughs> My memory is so terrible. I'm glad you brought it. I would never have done it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I make a lot of promises. I, I would, Even when I write books, I think, like I said, like I was saying one chapter, I'll, I'll talk about this in a later chapter. And I always wonder, yeah. did ever, how, many, yeah. how many in that book are there moments where I say, I'll talk about this later? And like, it never yeah. happens. You know? So yeah. I apologize. <laughs> Any readers that, yeah. So, <laughs> what happened? So, because people will ask me, well, okay, well, well, if something, if the public has a wrong belief, what do you do? Like, how do you, <laughs> how, you know, what, what do you, yeah. what, how do you fix it? You know, and, you know, so, and speaking of Jonathan Haidt, I mean, I think he kind of gave me really good advice at the beginning of, of like 2020. Well, not, you know, like May, June 2020. And he kind of like used like the freight train analogy and said, you know, first off, don't step mm. in front of the freight train. 
Um, you know, so <laughs> what does that, that mean to what does it mean to stop in front of the free trade? It's like, you know, if there's like a yeah, thinking like Twitter, like Twitter, we all know Twitter's like terrible. And um, so but dumpster fire. It's, it's fun, but it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. on it. Also you know, so super fun, fun. super yeah. fun. Yeah. You, you can you can sort of curate it so it's fun, but if you don't, it's terrible. Yeah. But um, you know, so if there is this kind of like emotional movement, like a, a massive outpouring, that for a while it is just unstoppable. So <laughs> yeah. if people want to believe that drinking green tea causes cancer and there's like a big massive like this is a thing even if you know that drinking green tea doesn't cause cancer there's no point getting on twitter and saying this because mm. nobody's listening and they'll just mm. try to destroy you you know um <laughs> and unfortunately yeah. that doesn't that phase doesn't last forever typically you know people mm -hmm. go back to their jobs they realize that there are video games to play that you know there are other mm -hmm. things to distract them so once the temperature kind of comes down a little bit, then you can start to like, but the data yeah. um, and the reality is, of course, people don't like data, right? You know, well, they do and they don't. I mean, you know, so they're resistant to it for a variety of reasons. But what I tell people, and this is what worked for like the airline issue, you know, mm -hmm. and it's also what worked for video games, you know, with the video mm -hmm. the idea that video games cause mass homicides, which we now know is not true. It's really a 15 to 20 year process. Uh, wow. Generally speaking, yeah, of stay it's, that's so long it is it is <laughs> unfortunately you have to stay calm so you can't like mm. engage in the mud fight you have to stay calm don't make stupid jokes about stuff people are emotional about so you mm. trying to get sarcasm satire has this weird like satire can work sometimes but mm. you have to but it, like trying to like go in with sarcasm tends to backfire and stuff so mm. you know you want to use humor judiciously but yeah. you know uh but be careful you know sarcasm doesn't come off well on the internet for the most part i've i've, mm. I've observed i'm sure that i've done it don't get me wrong you know I've, I've, i'm probably sinned as much as anybody but then it is a matter of just present the data over and over and over and over but the data but the data but the data mm -hmm. you know and eventually people are initially resistant you know yeah. they say like you know you know universities are a patriarchy you know but 60 percent of students are women but they're a patriarchy, but 60% of students are women, you know, and so on and so forth. You kind of over and over, you say it, you know, more and more administrators are women, you know, so, on, sure. you know, so people eventually kind of go, huh, is it possible that boys aren't doing well in education mm -hmm. at this point? Yeah. And this is something we've actually known again for probably two decades that this was going, this was happening to boys, for instance. Mm -hmm. And now we are seeing like, like literally this last month, Richard Reeves came out with a book about this and, mm -hmm. you know, that people are starting to go, hey, are boys not doing well at school? You know, we've known this for decades. This is not like yeah. a new thing. But all of a sudden, people are sort of realizing, like, huh, maybe we forgot about boys somewhere in here. You know, yeah. which again, it's not to say that girls don't have challenges. You know, but we can think two thoughts at the same time. Right. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be an either or you know challenge thing. So I think that, you know what happened with the airline industry and people that did research on transportation safety, and whatever, is they just kept saying, "But you're more likely to die in your car." You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're more likely to die in your car. And at this point, mm -hmm. I think most people got it. You know, they still might mm -hmm. be a little bit nervous on planes. But I think people now pretty much all know that you're more likely you should be nervous in your car. You're more likely to yeah. die in your car. And I think at this point, the same thing happened with video games. It really was just researchers. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, mass shootings are a thing, but most mass shooters are like in their 40s and they don't play video games, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, there's just no evidence. And so you just have to say it over and over and over again, calmly as you can. You have to be patient. 
Persuasion mm-hmm. is not satisfying because nobody will agree <laughs> to your face. You know, nobody changes their mind in front of you, you know, mm-hmm. so you never get the feedback you want. You know, uh, it's much <laughs> easier to preach to the choir because then you get the feedback of everybody agreeing with you. But you get in a debate with somebody and they say, video games are terrible. You know, they're just they're damaging kids brain. You say, well, actually, I researched this. and I've been doing this for 20 years and I can't find any evidence. Have video games do any of these things. I'm happy to share with you a bunch of papers if you'd like. Yeah, they'll put you to sleep if nothing else. You yeah. know, does that that benefit? And they'll never agree in your face. You know, they'll never say, "Oh, you convinced me. I was wrong." You know, they go, oh, sure. blah, 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 blah. "You know, I'm going to have yeah. But they'll think about it. You know, yeah. and um, and some of those, not everybody, but some of those people will gradually change their minds. And so it's, mm. it's the same thing with whether you're trying to convince people that maybe you know not having another Trump administration would be desirable or that maybe not riding over an issue that was way more complicated than the news media told you, you know, uh, mm-hmm. may not have been the best thing either. You know, mm-hmm. it takes a little while. I mean, so if you kind of look, think of like the temperature today around like race and policing or race and society, obviously it's still bad, but it's mm-hmm. not as bad as it was two years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. I, the conversation I'm having with you today, I would not have had with you or anybody two years ago. I would have been petrified. Uh, for, for, okay, fair enough. You, you fair might have, you yeah. might have had. I don't I know. I, I would not. I would have been, yeah. I would have been scared to death to have yeah. it two and a half years ago. Um, so I, I think that people have at least opened up the dialogue. They may disagree with me, um, and there may be some people out there that would, you know, want to get me fired. I don't know. Whatever. But I have tenure. Yeah. Um, so good luck. But um, you know. <laughs> yes. But I think, like you know university administrators and this kind of stuff are more sensitive to we should have these open debates and we should back people that have these open debates. Um, and, and part of that's because of lawsuits. So people have been, the university has mm. been sued, you know, for firing professors and that kind of stuff. So I think that's helped first mm. off. Um, and uh, But I think that the temperature has changed. But I think it's also in part because of the overstep, you know, by the extreme people on both the left and the right. Mm. You know, once you've tried to burn down the U.S. Capitol or, you know, <laughs> have, you know, I don't know, destroyed Minneapolis or something of that sort, yeah. people are like, I, I don't know, <laughs> that might be, you might have overdone yeah. it, you know, well, maybe. Once you, once you increase <laughs> the amount of scarcity, right, that people are experiencing yeah. or the potential that they will experience more scarcity. Yeah. There will be measures to clamp down. It's sort of like an internal, it's internal to the human experience. Yeah. Like one one way, going in one direction way too far will inevitably result in a sort of yeah. swing back. Yeah. So there's no way to expedite the 15 to 20 year process. <laughs> I, I wouldn't like say there's never any way of doing it, but you know, you would, you know, the timeline's not like, you know, set by God or anything of that sort. Yeah, you yeah. know, it, it you know, <laughs> it, you can see like yeah. rapid collapses, you know, if a movement, it depends on how badly a movement overreaches sometimes too, mm. you know. So um, if, and I think that maybe like the Black Lives Matter movement may be an example of this where, you know, the deaths of thousands or tens of thousands of black latino and and white individuals in low-income neighborhoods you know which is not maybe entirely attributable to the 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 george floyd rise and protests but you know is it probably at least partly attributable to that Mm -hmm. you know uh i I, you know i think there's been a rapid decline well i know that i know there has been a rapid decline in support you know for black lives matter across the board including in the black community so i I think we're seeing a pretty rapid shift in that uh maybe a little bit faster than like for video games you know uh, Mm. for instance or for airplanes so you, you know you can discredit yourself pretty rapidly if you just look like you're entirely incompetent. The, mm. the buying of the mansions didn't help. 
you know, sure. <laughs> you know, yes. uh, so you start to look like yes. a scam at some at some yeah. point, you know, in there. And the same thing with, I think, I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't live in in right spaces, so it's a little bit harder to suss that out. Um, sure. but, you know, I think, yeah, obviously, the in my my impression, the Trump administration was an absolute disaster and, and yeah. uh, you know, invisibly so. And so I think at least a mass of the population, I don't, I, well, I got the first one wrong. So first off, my credit <laughs> predictions or presidential elections don't matter at all. But I had this but the sense. New York, yeah. The New York Post did have a cover when Trump announced that he was running for a second time. And it was something like, man somewhere says something or, or something yeah. very like disres- disrespectful yeah you know? yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean he's still got his base i don't want to so i don't want to like get too optimistic yeah. here but uh you know i would vote for a person with dementia over trump at this point i'm just gonna try <laughs> to say it, you know okay. uh so <laughs> uh, you know i you know i think there's a pretty good yeah. uh speaking as a clinical psychologist i haven't you know well actually i did meet biden but i was like 10 years ago <laughs> Uh, I didn't want to make the joke. I wanted to allow you to make you know that where, joke. You know where I'm going with it. I, yeah. But I knew where you were going. From, with from this the distance, one, yeah. I would say yeah. I have a, a you know the, the like, hypothesis the signs are there. Is not yes. an unreasonable hypothesis. I think you yeah. know, I can't say definitively, obviously, yeah. but uh, yeah, um, you know I, I see some signs. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I think it can be faster. I'm trying to think of examples of things that mm. were popular and flared out like rapidly. I mean, I guess, like Occupy Wall Street might be sort of like mm. that way. It was like it was like right front and center, like around 2008, right. like 10, 12. And nobody ever hears of it anymore. You know, I think yeah. sometimes you can get stuff like that. That sort of playing. I actually be, would be curious what you think about my hypothesis that just came to me about this. I, yeah. My hypothesis is that anything without any movement, any protest movement that lacks spiritual discipline yeah well peter out i think so in fact i just read something very similar to that you know they didn't necessarily refer to this the spiritual leadership but they did say like leadership in general yeah. and they you know so if you can look at like uh the civil rights movement right i mean they, they right. had you know dr martin luther king jr was exactly yeah. you know, a spiritual man and you know very critical guiding force, you know, for 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 that movement. There are a lot of other individuals involved, absolutely, but he was able to sort of, you know, centralize and keep on message, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the civil rights movement. And it was a successful, you know, movement. Whereas like Antifa just looks like a bunch of like rich <laughs> white kids that are like yeah. causing trouble, you know. Um, yeah. so But this is this is actually an important point. I would say I would add to this. Rich white kids, perhaps I guess they are primarily white. Um, rich white kids that have no spiritual guidance. Yeah. Like there, there is no anchor. There is no like moral vision. Yeah. For where we're going. Yeah, yeah, I think, and, absolutely. And, and, they're, they're just breaking right? shit, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In terms yeah. Of, I mean, I've seen their booking photo. I, I, I said white for a reason. I've seen the booking photos of people yeah, that are, yeah, yeah. and talk about like systemic like racism. You couldn't find a whiter group than like Antifa. I just I think, part know? of me, part of me, just like thinks that. That is irrelevant, but I understand that you're being descriptive here. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, I get it. Yeah, I, but I do think there's something to be said about the spiritual poverty of a lot of these movements. Yeah. Well, I think so, in general, I mean, the, the case has been made, you know, um, that you know society in general has a kind of spiritual poverty, right? You know, yeah. Uh, as we become more and more secular, and, and mostly in ways that I, you know, I enjoy and I like, yeah. you know, and more abundant, yeah. ironically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More like more rich in resources. Yeah, you know, yeah. As, co- as a correlation there. Yeah, but I think a lot of these movements, you know, have 
you know, a quasi-religious purpose, right? In a way of mm-hmm. like, you know, like wokeism or whatever you want to call that thing, or mm-hmm. or even like the MAGA-ish, you know, kind of stuff mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. Or, or certainly like QAnon, right? Like on the yeah. right, you know, but like you said, but they don't really have any kind of you know, they're quasi-religious but lacking in the spirituality or lacking in any kind mm-hmm. of like moral responsibility, you know, in a way. Mm-hmm. It's all about sinners, but without any saints, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, you know, or at least mm-hmm. there's no sense of how you can be a good person other than to give up complete control and obedience, you know, to <laughs> whatever the movement says today, you know, as opposed to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes, it's constantly changing. There's something very par- parasitic and therefore demonic about it. Yeah. And I don't even, I don't even mean demonic in a like super, super, super negative way. I just mean it's like parasitic. It's like, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no there there. I think I've seen Jonathan Peugeot, who's like a Christian artist for lack of a better word talk about these these yeah. things how these movements take on very parasitic forms yeah and they just sort of like peter out they rise and then they peter out they rise and they peter out because there's no sort of like internal discipline locus of control vision none of those things that right. are necessary for you know yeah. successful movement to exist yeah i think a lot of them really just also don't have any kind of like sensible policy prescription you know and why would they yeah you, know? <laughs> you don't want to really you know <laughs> truly you don't want to actually succeed if you're an advocacy group right you know uh because then you don't get any well money, yeah you know well this is a <laughs> this is a long-term well according to tom holland who wrote a book about christianity i don't know if you read this book dominion mm-hmm. it's a very good book okay I'll um, check it out. how christianity starts to eat itself mm. or certain aspects of christianity starts to eat itself because he argues that christianity inevitably leads to atheism gotcha. on some level. i'm not i'm not going to tease that out but basically as it pertains to what we're talking about here it's like it like christianity was brilliant in its inversion of the sign of the cross from being a sign of like domination on the part of the romans and seeing the caesar as like this oppressor but also like worshiping him because he was such an oppressor right christianity takes that and inverts it and turns it into like the symbol of the poor, the symbol mm. of the oppressed, the symbol of the the enslaved. And Nietzsche's critique of this is that this can lead to a kind of narcissism mm. and a narcissistic over-identification with victimhood. Yeah. And I personally haven't seen anything to successfully stop that except for like a combination of like reading Christianity mystically with Zen stuff. But yeah. we don't have to get into that. But um, I think that that's what we're seeing. Yeah play out in a lot of these move short-lived movements in the past yeah. decade in America. Well, there definitely is a new like thread of evidence in psychology about this idea of uh, what, we, what we call now trait victimhood. You know, so basically mm. people who make victimhood a core aspect of their personality, like their, their identity mm. is being a victim. It's become now, a trait. <laughs> yes, and it becomes a trait. It becomes like, like <laughs> they can't let go of it. You know what I mean? Like it's, mm. it's like... It's their identity, you know, and because they express it, you know, uh, and as you might sort of guess, they're aggressive, right? You know, they actually they they view it as because they're victims, they have the right to punish others, you know, Mm. and uh, so it's a very aversive personality style, you know, at least in some of the initial evidence that that is coming up. But I think that, you know, part of our problem as a society now, you know, maybe particularly on the left, is that we do seem to idolize victims, right? Not just Mm. offer sympathy. We should offer sympathy for victims. But there is a sense of like, you're a better human being. Yeah, you're a victim, (laughs) you know, in a way, right? You know, so 
And even in like identity movements that, you know, so if we're looking like trans or LGBT or whatever, I don't know, we say like, absolutely, you know, people should be able to live their authentic lives or get married or do whatever. I'm not, you know, but on the other hand, it doesn't mean that they're better people right. um, than everybody else. Right. But there is a sort of essence of like, if you're any, you know, if you're any, any kind of marginalized identity, which the list of which is becoming longer and longer, that somehow you're, you're brave or exceptional or we should listen to you to a greater mm-hmm. extent than we should listen to other people who aren't part of that identity. So it's really kind of inverted power structures in a way, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, rather than smooth them down, which I think really right. have been the goal. So, right, and, right. but of course, if you set up that situation, then people grift on it, which was uh, what well, I think people lose track of. If you say like, well, if you come from a marginal identity, then you can get your TikTok channel or, you know, people will send mm-hmm. you money in Venmo, you know, whatever we call these things, or you just get more attention, then of course, everybody's going to want to be in that category and you're going to get. Yes, but that <laughs> I think I have the solution to this. Actually, it's not a solution. It's just an observation. But my gripe with intersectionality, I was actually trying to think about this when I was speaking to my housemate the other day, but my gripe with it isn't that it doesn't have a point. Yeah. My gripe with it is that it suggests that we live in a society where people who are, let's say, addicts are actually privileged. And yeah. what, what do I mean by this? So I take like the movie Wolf of Wall Street as a prime example. Mm-hmm. I saw that the first time. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Right. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I saw it the second time and I was like, oh, these guys are addicts. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference between seeing that movie and being like, oh, these are a bunch of privileged white men for using their money and power for, you know, whatever. And there's... And saying, oh, these are a bunch of addicts who are deeply suffering. Those those are two very different yeah. lenses. And it's not as if just because they're addicts and suffering doesn't mean they aren't karmi- causing harm. Right. right. They are. But there's this there's a way in which the language of intersectionality uh, and of privilege obscures the fact yeah. that people in positions of so-called power are not just oppressing others, but are themselves oppressed by this sort of overwhelming sense of money and power that's yeah. coming to them. And that, if we could get society to reframe, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what I would bet on. It's like, <laughs> so then you wouldn't aspire to that because there's something actually incredibly harmful about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got 15 to 20 years to invest in that. <laughs> I'll just keep repeating. Just keep that. repeating it patiently, every repeating. place you can. Yeah, <laughs> some yeah, little yeah. charts and pie graphs and that, that kind of stuff that you could probably get. Yeah. There. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. Well, this has been a great conversation. Oh, I loved there, it. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, me too. Chris, is there anything else that you want to like uh, promote? On the pod, any where, where should we follow you? Where should we like check out your stuff? Sure, absolutely. So people can check out my uh, my webpage. It's not very imaginative. It's just my name, uh, www.christopherjferguson.com. Um, I actually write a little bit of fiction. So if people want to read some fiction for free, oh, cool. some stuff over there too. Yeah, yeah. Sure, cool. Uh, all my academic papers are there. So if you have insomnia, that's a pretty good cure um, <laughs> for uh, for that. You can follow me on Twitter. I don't know if Twitter is going to exist another week, but uh... <laughs> that's what I've heard. I haven't I, been on Twitter I, in two weeks i think it's gonna so i have no around. idea what's I, happening I, my yeah. 50 cents is it so i think people are exaggerating but who knows <laughs> uh but it's just uh cj ferguson 1111 and uh yeah buy my book help help me put my kid through college i would uh really <laughs> you know <laughs> awesome awesome well thanks chris for coming on the pod it'll be I, I think it'll be a really cool episode that a lot of people will get stuff from so yeah. 
Awesome. Thank you for speaking with me today. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>